Please stand as we read Revelation 6, 12 through 17. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. Said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Who indeed? May the Lord add his grace to the reading and understanding that comes from his word. Please be seated. I'm sure every parent in this room has had an experience like mine, especially if you're the parents of boys. You see that little twit standing there, and he's just about to do something wrong. He's looking at perhaps his little sister, and he's either going to pester her in some way or take her toy. And you know what he's thinking. And what's interesting is he knows that you know what he's thinking. And you say, don't do it. You're going to walk funny for a week. And then you watch as that little sinner counts the cost. Is it going to be worth it? And you know, you just know, he's going to do it. And you think to yourself, man, that's just crazy. Well, what does it say about fallen mankind that God has been speaking to us like that for thousands of years? From Genesis to Revelation, God has spoken to fallen mankind and said, Come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Repent and believe the gospel. You will be saved, you and your household. That's a good offer, isn't it? You can say yes. But you have to believe you've got something to be saved from. Then it really becomes a good offer. Well, the corollary to that good offer, the other side of the coin, is, for example, like that of Adam. Eat of the tree of all the trees in the garden, except one, that one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if you eat of that one, On the day you eat of it, you will die. And what did our brain-dead first parent do? That's Bill Cosby's words back when he was a good guy. But, and what did that, our brain-dead first parent do? He ate of the tree. And he died. He became dead in his sins and trespasses, and not only he died, but all of his offspring in him died afterwards. The whole point of this illustration that just as a kid knows 
You will do what you say when you say don't do things like that. It will not go well for you. Capisce? It's not. It's also the point that he does it anyway. Fallen mankind stands before God knowing, knowing at some level that they should seek God, knowing that the wrath of God has been revealed to them from heaven against men's sin. And instead of seeking God, they build idols. We build idols. We build false images or ideas of God in our head. We think to ourselves, he doesn't really care. He doesn't really mean it. He's not going to do what he says. He's not really going to punish us. Or like that little kid, he says, we say, well, whatever, I'm going to do it anyway. Now, brothers and sisters, that's just plain crazy. This is the insanity of fallen mankind. God is good. He does good. He is just and merciful. And, and he extends the offer of sin and eternal life to us. And it's a good deal. But like a herd of lemmings going through history, mankind has shown his insanity is that we keep following previous generations doing the same thing they did. Mankind as a whole and many in Christ's church refuse to give total allegiance to Christ. We acknowledge him with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. We do not seek the Lord, and we don't want to do what he says. And so, God says, judgment is sure and certain. It will come. And it cannot be halted. And on that day, no one who has rejected God's offer will be exempt. And on that day, they will stand there and they will acknowledge they have no one to blame but themselves. They will admit, I was insane. We see that, that day pictured for us today in our passage. It is the sixth seal. And we must understand that this is the culmination of all history, the end of time as we know it. The six seals cover all of history from the day of Christ's ascension down to the very last day. And they tell us about history as we live it. The four horsemen that we spoke of last week in seals one through four Tell us about the truth and misery that is in our world now. They are there as a outworking, if you will, as a down payment, as, as a token of God's judgment to come. I'm sure you saw the first Godfather movie, the greatest of them all. They, these four judgments on earth are like that horse head lying in that bed. You know? This is what's going to happen to you if you don't do what you should. Those last two seals, however, are here to teach us, believe it or not, and to give us hope. 
as we go through life persevering under the face of the four horsemen, these last two seals are here to show us that our labors in this difficult time are not in vain. Even suffering, even martyrdom has its place. And that at all the evil that uh, mankind has brought into the world will be dealt with justly and on that day without mercy. The sixth seal in particular is there to show us this. God is a God who keeps his word. He does what he says. The penalty for sin is death. And God will not now, nor will he ever, leave sin unpunished. It is either punished in Christ or it is punished in our persons. Only a crazy person would refuse the offer to find their salvation in Christ. So, let's look at these things in a little more detail. What I'd like to point you to first here is something that's obvious right off the face of it. God is not deaf regarding the cries of his people. In the fifth seal, we hear the martyrs cry out, How long, O God, merciful and true, until you judge and avenge? Notice that word, avenge. The blood of those who were cruelly executed for their faith. Now that word avenge there means to procure justice for or to take vengeance or to punish. That's what it means. And here we're brought face to face with, face to face with a biblical truth. And we've got to get used to it. We're brought face to face with a biblical truth that God says vengeance is mine. In Deuteronomy 32, God speaks and he says, Vengeance is mine and recompense. That means payback. Their foot shall slip in due time for the day of their calamity is at hand and the things to come hasten upon them. Notice that. The day of their calamity is at hand. The, the day of punishment. Now all of the unjust people who are the people who were unjustly persecuting others in that day, God says they're sooner or later going to slip up. And their day of calamity will come. Romans 12, Paul says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. This is Paul. Don't seek vengeance yourself. God is a lot better at it than you are. That's what Paul is saying. And his vengeance is your pure. Your vengeance is wrapped up in your own sin. Give it over to God. Let him bring vengeance. Let him bring judgment. In Hebrews 10, the writer says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He says, this is the God we serve. He is just, and he will judge justly. But it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of our living God. God's people, his murdered saints, cry out for justice. They cried out in the Old Testament. They continue to cry out in the New Testament. And brothers and sisters, the true people of God 
Those who have hearts of flesh instead of stone are crying out for justice even today. God's people in heaven are no longer enslaved by degrading passions. So when they cry out for vengeance, they're not, they're not crying out in bloodthirstiness. They're not crying out with a heart of hate. They've been saved from all that. No, they're crying out because they, purified as they are, like God himself, hate sin. They hate the degrading passions that sin brings about in God's good earth. They hate seeing their brothers and sisters in Christ suffering. So they cry out, how long? They hunger for the day when Christ will, uh, when uh, their faith and Christ's honor will be vindicated. So, they want Christ to prove his rightful claim to the world's allegiance. They want him to execute judge, judgment. They want satanic cruelty to an end. But they are told a very surprising thing. They are told to wait a little bit longer until the definite number of those who had to go through suffering of uh, martyr's death would be completed. The fifth seal teaches us that there's a definite number of unjust suffering. I spoke of this last week. And so there's a, a specific number. These many people who are yet to be born will have to be born into, into um, this world and be unjustly um, killed for their faith. And then God will answer their plea. But the sixth seal, the one we're taking up today, tells us that the Lord has heard their cry for vengeance and he will give his saints what they want. He will execute judgment on the earth. All who have lived by an unjust sword will die by the sword. All who have abused their economic privilege and confined the poor in slums, we will see their greed exposed and their wealth destroyed. It's going to happen. Those who have used political power to kill babies, who have glorified and normalized sexual perversion, who have used their offices to accumulate and, uh, wealth and furnish their own, uh, feather their own nest, these are the great men that we see mentioned in this passage. They are the ones who will cry out in terror and say, who can stand before the terror of the Lamb? And then they will know for certain that it is indeed a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The sixth seal teaches us that God hears the cries of his people for justice, and he will answer them. Now next we should consider when this day is coming. It will come, brothers and sisters, when the definite number of sins that God has decreed to happen in this world will be complete. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains 
and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? I want you to notice the scope of sinners who are fleeing from the face of God. We see a full range of people. It's not just the wealthy. It's not just the powerful. We see the very top of society down to the very lowest rungs of society, rich and poor, mighty men and commanders, slave and free. Now, each one of these have in their own way contributed to mankind's rebellion against God. As we think about this in our head, as we think of all of the world, all of those people who have done this, we might be inclined to think it's an endless number. Just think of the billions of people who are in at this very moment in opposition to God. But that sense that it is an endless number is misleading. Because just as there is a definite number of martyrs who will have to die before the end is brought, before judgment comes, there is, brothers and sisters, and this is our hope, there is a very definite number, a specific number, of unjust actions that God will allow to be, happen, to be taken by arrogant, unbelieving rebels against his authority. Every sin in this world counts down against the number of sins that God has decreed shall be allowed to happen. And it will not just be the sins of the rich and famous, but of the poor and lowly. How many of you have ever heard of the doomsday clock? A few people. A few people are awake. <laughs> there we are. Okay. Well, the doomsday clock, you know, it's supposed to tell how many seconds there are, minutes there are left. To, to the end of the world, basically due to nuclear holocaust. Well, it started out at seven minutes back when it was started, and it's down to 100 seconds now. So people think that various things in the world are such that we live in greater terror now, of a greater um, danger of nuclear war than years ago when the clock first started. But stop and think about that. In God's, in God's timing, there is a clock coming to judgment, but it's ticking off the numbers of sins that he is going to allow, giving man opportunity to repent before he says, that's enough. We see this in God's dealings with Abraham. I would point you back to Genesis 15, and there, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but God basically says, Abraham, hey, I'm going to send your descendants down into Egypt. And they're going to remain there for a time until the iniquity of the Amorites is completed. Actually says, until, uh, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, but saying it will be complete when he brings back his people from Egypt to execute judgment on the people in the promised land. Now, did you catch that? They went down to Egypt to stay in Egypt. <coughs> until the sins of the people in the promised land reached their full measure. And those people in the promised land were sinning and would continue to sin until their quota was complete. And brothers and sisters, that same principle is present in our world today. Sin must run its course. But there's an end to it. 
there's a maximum limit. And when that limit is reached, there will be literally hell to pay. From the example of the Israelites, we learn that sin is a natural progression when it is not restrained by the influence of God's people. <clears throat> when God's people, Abraham, was taken out of the promised land, there was no restraint on the sin there, and so the Amorites were given over to it. And they spiraled down into depravity. They became increasingly perverted. As Paul says, God gives them over to the uncleanliness and lust in their heart, and he does so to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt the depths of their sin. The people of God suffer during this. But as with the Israelites, he does not leave them without a witness. God preserves his people through his spirit and his power, and then when the time is right, he shakes the earth to its core, and he brings them out from their sin and misery in judgment. God judged the sins of Egypt in oppressing his people. Then he turned around and used the Israelites to judge the Amorites and the Canaanites. And later on, he would use the Assyrians and the Babylonians to punish the, Egypt, or the uh, Israelites again. And in every instance, when it's reported to us in Scripture, it is almost the prophets are saying it's like the, the earth is moving, the world is shaking. The Syrians came like hordes of locusts, destroying everything. The Babylonians shook the foundations of the known world all the way down to Egypt. Now, all of these things were ancient history, in ancient history, or metaphors. They were all instances, they were all down payments for what God would one day do in fulfillment. These ancient acts of judgment pointed beyond themselves to the sixth seal that we're looking at today. Now, brothers and sisters, I must proclaim to you there will come a day when everything on this earth will change. The wrath of the Lamb will descend from heaven. And every human institution that glorified man instead of God will be turned into rubble. <coughs> How is God going to do this? It is not entirely clear. Will he use human instruments to bring out the final judgment as he has done in the past? Possibly. In Revelation 17, uh, verses 9 through 14, which we'll get to down the road. <laughs> okay, when, when in that passage, it says that the Lamb will have victory over the great kings of the earth. But then it says those who are with the Lamb, when he does this, will be the ones who are called chosen and faithful. In other words, people like us. That would incline us to believe that Christ's victory, when it comes, will be a great battle where the evil in this world is ultimately defeated and somehow it is brought about through his church. I, that's, a, that's one way of looking at it. It's entirely possible. But he might just also bring about what we call acts of God, like when he flooded the earth. You know, that was a real flood. He might do something similar again. The entire global warming thing proves true. Then we may have catastrophic weather, catastrophic events in this world. 
that just about do us in or may do us in. And we may find that human civilization is being swept into a garbage can through a variety of instruments, including pandemics and catastrophic weather and wars and all kinds of stuff. The point is this. God has set a date, a specific date, when he will judge the world through a man he has raised from the dead. Paul said this to the philosophers in Athens, and it's just as true and just as certain now as it was then. Now this seal there enforces, reinforces the fact that on the, God, the great day of judgment, it will come through Christ. Verse 16, they said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. And what is it that they are trying to hide from? The wrath of what? The wrath of the lamb. The people hide from the face of God like Adam and Eve did in the garden, but now God has sent his son not to clothe them with fig leaves and furs, but to execute the judgment they deserve. Judgment has been delegated to the Son, as he himself said. But it's still jarring for us to think about the wrath of the lamb. Lambs are cute. They're, they're neat, you know. You pick them up and they do their thing and you pet them. We don't think the lamb having wrath. But the lamb here is to signify that this is the very person who gave his life as a sacrificial lamb for your sins so that you will not ever have to face his wrath. You don't, don't ever try to separate the love of Christ in saving from the anger of wrath, anger and wrath of Jesus that will be executed in judgment. It's the same person. Still, it's jarring. Let no man deceive himself, therefore, in thinking. On the day of my death, I will cry out to Jesus for help. I've never done it in my life. But I know, you know, I'll cry out. He'll forgive me then. <coughs> he's meek and he's gentle, and therefore he will forgive. Where there's life and breath, brothers and sisters, there is hope. And on the deathbed, I've been there when people have cried out for, for sin or for mercy and for forgiveness. I have been convinced on occasion that they indeed received it. But brothers and sisters, only a crazy person would think this way. Only a crazy person would think that they're going to be so in control on the day of their death that they're going to be able to cry out in sincere repentance and ask for forgiveness and receive it. The sixth seal teaches us that this day is going to come when the number of Christians who have been cruelly murdered for their faith and the last arrogant act of mankind together have been registered and Jesus will say then, as he said on the cross, it is finished. My work in history 
is done. Now, lastly, the sixth seal teaches us that God's justice is a cosmic event. Like the days of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah, of Egypt and the Amorites and ancient Jerusalem, it will be cataclysmic in its nature. And we, we see this in the words used. I looked and I, he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth. The fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by the wind. And then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Now, how are we to understand that? Now, we could take it literally. In Noah's day, there was an actual flood, as I said. In Moses' day, the river Nile was turned to blood. Darkness descended on an entire nation. When Jesus was on the cross, the earth shook. The sky turned black. The veil in the temple was torn. Now, all of these actual historical events may have been just down payments on the great historical events that will occur in the features, in the future. But there may also be a metaphorical side to these. On the day of Pentecost, a huge crowd gathered and saw amazing things. They saw the amazing workings of the Holy Spirit, causing the disciples to speak in foreign tongues, which were different national languages. And Peter said, hey guys, don't worry about this. This is the day of that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And I'm going to read for you again what was read for you earlier. In Acts 2, 19 through 21, I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, Peter said, this is that day when all that stuff happened. It doesn't require a, a degree in rocket science to see the parallels between what Joel said, that Peter said was fulfilled, and what we see in our passage. And so, that was the day that people were told to call on the day of the Lord. So it is possible that the description given to us here is metaphorical, pointing to a cataclysmic impact Jesus has in his victory, which will culminate in which all sinful rebellion against his uh, role is finally overcome. Many people, I'm not one of these, but many people called amills, uh, millennials, uh, see this as being how we should understand it, that this is what's going on right now, that these are not future events. Me, I think both are true. There's a metaphorical side to it, and there's a historical side to it, literally. And we must embrace the idea, metaphorically, that in these last days, we should see cataclysmic events. Brothers and sisters, don't be surprised if there's an intensity to the stuff that's happening to us. Don't be surprised that the hurricanes seem to get worse. That there is the worst fire in American history blazing away under this dome of heat that is over the western part of the United States of America. I'm not going to speak about California and all those guys out there. But, you know, I'm tempted. <laughs> because it, 
a dome of heat. That's what, the, that's what, silent, uh, that's what science says is owed to those people. They hadn't moved. And, and therefore, the heat that is under that dome has made these fires possible. And it has really cut back on the ability of the firefighters to fight against it because the equipment overheats. That's pretty severe. Don't be surprised at that stuff. Don't be surprised that it's happening. It should not be a surprise to us if it appears that all around us evil is triumphant everywhere. Because what does evil bring? Evil brings chaos. Do we see things happening in our world today in a neat and orderly way? Not much. Do we see violence spreading almost like cancer? Do we see uncertainty, anxiety, and danger uh, basically wrapping uh, God's people in straitjackets, or people in straitjackets? People are afraid to get out of their house and walk. Uh, brothers and sisters, I was 20 years old before I knew that houses had locks. Yeah, it, it, it just didn't happen. We didn't lock doors. We didn't lock our cars. Those things, that is what we're happening today. So all around us we see violence, uncertainty, and anxiety. In some sense, the moon does appear red through the smog of what we have about us. The mountains are being reduced to rubble by various industrial projects. Metaphorically, we could very well see God judging the world in every in ever-increasing severity. But literally, I think that these things, even as they're happening around us now, are moving towards a culmination. And I believe there's going to come a definite day when sinful mankind will be brought to their knees by a violent demonstration of God's wrath. There's not going to be any scientific explanation that happens. The only explanation is that the skies have parted and the Lord Jesus Christ has come and he has welcomed his people and he has brought judgment and wrath on all of those who have not bowed their knee and confessed him Lord. All the stuff we see in our world right now is building towards something. And as God's church, we are to be engaged with the world alongside Christ in bringing about that because our job is to be that parent standing there proclaiming to the world and saying, don't do it. It is not going to go well to you, for you, if you do. That's our job. And that's how we are going to be used by God to making sure that the world has no excuse because they have been told to their face that what they're doing is wrong, how they're living is wrong, what they're believing is wrong, and that one day, unless they repent, they will not be saved as others will be. Repeat with me. Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And all the people of God said,
Let's pray.